following audio is from West Pines Community Church. For more information about West Pines, visit us online at westpines.org. You can join us live Sunday morning at 9.45 or 11.30 a.m. in Pembroke Pines, Florida, or online at westpines.org. We're taking a look at this story, and it's really a murder mystery. It's actually the original mystery story. It's the first crime ever committed, the most notorious crime. It's a crime of Adam and Eve eating the forbidden fruit that really affects every single human being throughout history. Now, this is a great mystery story because along the way, you have this this mastermind villain, this evil mastermind, the snake, who talks this innocent party, this couple, Adam and Eve, talks them into committing this crime. And through the story, there are twists and turns. There's some tension. There's things that you don't expect along the way. We'll see the setup. We'll see the crime. There's a getaway, an attempted getaway. There's an investigation. It even takes you through the trial and the sentencing. It's a fascinating story, and we're going to jump into that this morning. But first, let me show you episode three of Murder in the Garden. Take a look. Last week on Murder in the Garden. What do you want, Snake? I uh, have a proposition for you. Just give him a chance, Adam. Yeah, the dame's got a good head on her shoulders, Adam. You should listen to her. What I got here is a piece of fruit. Did you say pizza fruit? The fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What about it, Eve? And I'm pretty sure it's the evil fruit tree of good knowledge. No, Adam, it's the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Let's eat it. We're talking about the evil knowledge tree of good fruit, right? No, I'm pretty sure we're both talking about the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. evil. Yes. And you know what, Adam? That name is way too long for a fruit. And I haven't gotten to name anything yet. Well, I did get here first. That's kind of my job. How is anyone supposed to know which fruit we're talking about? I've been thinking about a name... A name that just rolls off the tongue and that everyone can remember, like banana. But I came here to tell you that we should just eat the fruit. Banana? Can't you leave one name for me? You naming things? It's not going to happen. I'll tell people it's an apple. Or banapple. Nah. And this coming from the guy that came up with avocado. <sighs> Some days I'd rather have the rib back. Tune in next time for another episode of Murder in the Garden. It's there's trouble in the garden, okay? I just shown you the video. We found it. Actual footage. Sounds a little theological questionable. I'm not sure if it's actually biblical. But anyway, trouble in the garden, okay? And it all starts with the snake introducing this forbidden fruit. It spirals downward from there. Now, what happens when they eat the forbidden fruit, okay, what happens is it's really that act, it's like the mother of all sins, 
it's the first act of rebellion ever by, by humanity. It's the first act of rebellion against God. And through that, there's rebellion, and all of us have been a part of it. Every human since Adam and Eve has had sin in their lives since that moment. We've all had those little acts of rebellion. So it's the mother of all sins, not just only because of the, the scope of that sin, but also in the sense that all sins kind of come from that sin. So if we can look at the DNA of that mother sin, that massive original mistake, if we can pick it apart and see the DNA of that sin, then we can see the same DNA of our mistakes we can see the same DNA that are, that are in our sins, our acts of rebellion. We can see the same patterns, same assumptions, the same lies that we tend to believe. And so what we're doing is we're picking apart this first sin. We're picking it apart and so that we can see how we, don't fall, how we cannot fall into the same trap. So we're going to be looking in Genesis chapter 3. Now let me give you the backstory to our murder mystery. Okay, here's the backstory. God creates the first two humans, Adam and Eve. And he creates an incredible garden for them to live in. This is probably more like a region. And he places them in this garden and he says, man, in this garden is every lush tree imaginable. You have everything that you need, just luscious fruit. You you want for nothing. He places them in this garden and he says, okay, one thing, there's this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. He says, don't eat of that tree places them in the garden, and then we open with chapter 3, and we get introduced to our master villain, our evil mastermind, the snake. Look what it says. This is Genesis 3, verse 1. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field, now look at this line up here. I want you to see who, who is referred to. Okay, it says, I want you to read the name of God with me. It says, the Lord God had made. The serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. Okay, a couple things. Let's just pause the movie here for a second. A couple things I just want to see right off the bat. First of all, is the Bible is telling us the snake is very crafty. We don't want to just skip over that. Because if we just skip over that, then we'll just read the conversation and we won't really drill into it. It's cueing us that the snake is tricky, manipulative. It's cueing us to look at his tactics, see how he's going to trick, how he's going to trap Adam and Eve. We know that he's going to be very manipulative, so we're going to watch very closely the details of how he talks to Adam and Eve. The second thing I want to take a look at is how the narrator refers to God. And we're just going to hold on to this concept just for a second. But he refers to him as Lord God. Okay, hold on to that idea. Let's look at the second half of that first verse. Look what it says. This is the snake talking. He said to the woman, now I want you to read the underlined word with me. Did God actually say, you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? All right, now the first line that he says, he says, man, he comes up to Adam and Eve and um, Eve's standing there and he says, man, this is opening line, okay, it's going to be tricky. And he says, man, did God really say you can't eat any trees of any of the trees? I mean, man, that's a pretty raw deal you've got there. You can't eat of any of the trees in the garden, man, you must be, 
you must be starving. Man, that's just terrible that God would do that. Now remember, at this point, they're vegetarians. That's all they eat. They don't eat anything else other than the tr- of the trees in the garden. So what the snake is saying is absurd. He's basically not just saying, man, that's, that's a bummer you can't eat of these trees. He's saying, man, you must be starving. You haven't had anything to eat. Man, that is terrible. What a raw deal that you have. He's already working an angle. He's already starting to paint a picture about who God is. He's starting to paint this picture of he's starting to paint this picture of God being very restrictive. What he how he's describing God is so over exaggerated of how restrictive God is. Man, you can't eat of any of the trees in the garden. Now I want you to see the word. The second thing we can see from this verse is see the the word that the snake used to describe God. He just simply says the word God. The narrator used Lord God. The snake used the name God. Now you're saying, okay, that seems like a really minor detail. Well, the Hebrew scholars throughout the years have drawn this out because if we were to read it in the original ancient Hebrew, it actually draws out a really powerful truth. We actually see how tricky the snake is being. Okay, let's just do a little background here on the names of God. There are primarily three most common names for God in the ancient Hebrew Old Testament. The first name for God that's one of the most common is the name Elohim. Elohim, let's say that together. Elohim. Now this word Elohim, this name, is very similar to our word God in that it's a little bit more generic, It's a totally appropriate name for God, but it just simply means God. Okay, then there's a second, one of the other very, very common names for God is the name Yahweh. Yahweh, let's say that one together. Yahweh. This this is sometimes also pronounced Jehovah. That's referring to the same Hebrew word. Yahweh and Jehovah is referring to the same Hebrew word. And this is a little bit of a different sense than Elohim. The word Yahweh is the personal name for God. In fact, from a very technical standpoint, all the other names are more titles. This is strictly a name. It is his personal name. It essentially means something like he is. It's just saying he is the source of existence. His existence, because all life and all existence was was created out of him, his existence is actually more real, more legitimate, because everything else that exists comes from his existence. His name is just simply Yahweh, which means he is. It's the personal name for God. It's the name that's often used when it's talking about how God is interacting with his people. When it talks about his, his love for them or it's talking about his covenant, his promises with them, often uses the name Yahweh. It's talking about the laws that he has for them to protect them. It's often the name Yahweh. It's his personal name. And it, it's kind of giving the idea of his personal interaction with him. It's a name that's been revealed to his people, Yahweh. Okay? The third very common name for God is the name Adonai. Let's say that one together. Adonai. And this one is commonly trans, translated as Lord. It basically means like Sir. It's, an, it's a way to 
honor God. It's a way to basically say, I am in submission to you. I, I am submitted to you. You are far greater than I am. So it's often translated Lord, okay? To give you an idea, I'm going to oversimplify it to kind of give you an idea, all right? If you lived in a kingdom and they, there was a king in the kingdom and his name was King George, there's several different ways you could refer to him. You could refer to him with just the generic title king. If you were standing before him, you might say your highness or sire. Or you might refer to him simply as George, King George. So there's a generic name, king. There's a, a name that's kind of honoring him like sire or your highness. And then there's an actual personal name that's referring to that particular king, George. Okay, if we lived a couple hundred years ago and the president was Thomas Jefferson and you take a time machine and he wants to meet up with you because you're from the future, you may show up and say, Mr. President, it is an honor to be here to meet with you. You might also say, Sir, I'm so thank you for letting me meet here with you. Okay, and, and yet that president has a personal name, Thomas Jefferson. That's his personal name. It's very similar to the generic title for God, Elohim, his personal name, Yahweh, and also titles that are just honoring him like Lord or Adonai. Now, when it comes to his personal name, it's important to not mistake a personal name with a casual name. Okay, if you were meeting with Thomas Jefferson, you wouldn't say, hey, Tom, how's it going? Tommy, good to see you. T-Bone, how you doing? You probably wouldn't do that. Be a little disrespectful. You would, you would still refer to him as Mr. President. You may refer to him as Sir. But it, just because he has a personal name doesn't mean it's a casual name. For generations, God's people felt convicted to never actually say God's personal name out loud. They would never utter the name Yahweh. So in our English translations, when it's translating it into English, it follows that tradition and it doesn't write Yahweh. You'll see in your Bibles, it says Lord in all capitals. Because often what they would do, instead of speaking the name Yahweh, they would substitute Adonai in for that word because they didn't want to dishonor God by treating this unbelievably sacred personal name too casually. So here, all that to say, I want you to look at what's happening in this story because the, if, we see, if we're sensitive to that, we see something really interesting in this passage. All through the story, if you even rewind it back to the, very, to the beginning of chapter 2 when God places Adam and Eve in the garden and it's telling the story, the narrator always refers to God as Yahweh Elohim. It's in our Bibles as Lord in all caps, Lord God. It's always referring to Yahweh Elohim. It's drawing out this personal sense that he is interacting with, his, with humanity. It's this, he's not an impersonal, distant God. He is a personal God interacting, walking in the garden with Adam and Eve. The narrator always refers to Yahweh Elohim. But there's one part in the story where it's reduced to just the generic God, just generically Elohim. And it starts when the snake is talking. Do you notice the snake? He said, what did Elohim say about? So did God actually say? 
What's happening here is so subtle. Remember, the, the snake is so tricky, so crafty. He's not using a bad name. That's a completely legitimate name to refer to God. But we see by the flow of the story, he's in, his, in the context of this discussion, he's reducing God to a distant, kind of cold, impersonal concept. Now I want you to see how Eve responds. Look at this. <clears throat> This is verse 2. Then the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said... Do you know she follows suit? He's drawing her in. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Now here's what we've got going on. We've got the snake. He's very manipulative. He's working. He's, he's painting a picture about God. And he asks Eve, what did God say about that one tree? Does he say you're not supposed to eat any of the trees? I can't believe God would say something like that. And Eve comes in. Now he's already got her. He's already, she's already referring, following suit, referring to God as kind of this distant, impersonal God. But then she says what Adam and Eve believe about what God said. Now, it's gonna, in a couple verses, it's going to zoom out, and we're going to realize that Adam was standing there the entire time. So Eve is the one being deceived, but Adam never jumps in, never corrects, never tries to stop it. In fact, while God will hold all the parties responsible, he will hold Adam chiefly responsible for the entire situation. And what we see here is we see Eve... Re, uh, restating what God had commanded her to, commanded them, she restates it, but the fact that Adam never jumps in, it reveals that this is what they both believe. God said, you can surely eat of any tree in the garden, but then when Eve says it, she says, yeah, we can eat of the trees in the garden. See what, first thing off the bat, she's minimizing the freedom that God gave them. God had actually, you can eat it. Look at all these trees. It's just filled with lush trees. You've got trees over there that you can eat. and the, the best trees possible you can eat from. It's just the one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you can't eat. But that's not what Eve says. Yeah, we can eat of the trees. She has the gist of it, but she's minimizing the freedom that God has given them. The second thing is, she says, um, yeah, it's this one tree that's in the middle of the garden. I'm not sure. It's just one of the ones in the middle. That's not what God said. He made it very clear. It's the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They're, she's a little fuzzy. They're a little fuzzy on which tree it is. Then she says, yeah, we're not supposed to eat of it or even touch it or, or we'll die. That's not what God said. God said, if you eat of the tree that very day, you will surely die. She's not only minimized the freedom that they have in God. Minimizes this luxurious garden that they've been placed in. She's minimizing all the things that God has given them. But she's also minimizing the consequences of her rebellion. That's interesting. Those two things, minimizing the freedom that God's given us or minimizing the consequences of rebellion, I'm not sure which is worse. Those are both very tragic. So maybe uh, this summer, you might be getting your family together to uh, go to Disney. Maybe you're planning a trip, 
You've got, you've got the kids all excited. You've been talking about Disney every time. Uh, you see a Disney princess, you tell your little daughter, we're going to see her in just a couple months. You're excited. You've told your, your son, hey, there's that new roller coaster, the, uh, the Seven Dwarfs uh, Mine Train. It's supposed to be incredible. We're going to get to ride on that. And you've got them all hyped up. You know, you've got your game plan. You've mapped out every single thing. If we do this, we can get all 38 things done in just one afternoon. Okay, you've got it all mapped out. You've thought through things like fast passes and what land you're going to be in, okay, monorail at this point and the ferry at this point. we got all mapped out, okay, and, um, and, and the day is coming. You've got it planned out. We're going to go at the perfect time. We're going to go in the middle of August. This is the best time <laughs> to walk around in Orlando, which is basically like it's on the equator, okay, and um, you've got it all ma- mapped up. It's perfect. Now, there are two moments in that day. There's many, but there's two especially that there could be just total disaster, okay? The first is you've gotten your entire family, your kids and everyone, they're up at 4 a.m., they're in the car, and if you can remember back to your childhood, you know any road trip that involves your siblings could end in disaster, okay? And that in and of itself, okay, just making it to Orlando is a feat in and of itself, all right? And so let's just imagine there's this one point when you're driving to Orlando and you've got to be ready with your ammunition when just things are being thrown in the back seat, okay? People, are, people have been poked and tattled on, okay? You've got to be ready. And let's say your response is, I will turn this car around right now. You just toss that little nugget of profundity out there, okay, for the people in the back seat. And now, if they don't appreciate the gravity of that statement, everything could be over before it begins. Like, the, whole, the months of planning and the anticipation, okay, the, the princesses will not be seen, okay, ride, roller coasters will not be ridden if they don't appreciate the gravity of, of that statement, But let's say you survive that. You make it to Orlando, you're okay. There's another point of near disaster. It's going to happen about 3.30 in the afternoon. You've been wandering around in 120 degree heat. There was that mid-morning rainstorm that waterlogged the whole family. You did get to visit some princesses. The ride for the mine train roller coaster was two and a half hours. You had to cut some things out. Okay, everyone's getting a little tired. All the nap times were completely missed. People are getting grouchy. The one little one that's on the weird leash thing got away for a while, okay? (laughs) Couldn't find them. All right, it was a bad situation. All right, you you had one of those turkey legs and you immediately regretted it, okay, afterwards. Don't fall for the turkey leg trap, okay? Okay. And it's about 3.30, and everyone's just on the verge. You went on It's a Small World one too many times. You're you're borderline insane at this point, okay? And then this moment happens where one of your children, they see the Mickey ice cream, and they say, could I have a Mickey ice cream, Father? And you look over at your spouse, and she goes, like that. For a couple reasons. A, she knows introducing the ingredient of sugar at this point could be catastrophic. B, it costs $67. Okay, so you're not going to do that. All right. 
Unfortunately, at that moment, that is like the straw that breaks the camel's back. I mean, there, there are kids wallowing on the ground, crying. Okay, one, one kid just pushed, pushed a character into the lake, all right? It's just, at that point, you're looking around, and the thought is actually happening. This was, I was told that this was a magical wonderland. My family is just on, on the brink of I don't, the security coming, taking me to Disney jail. I don't know what's happening, okay? I don't know how they get away with calling this an amusement park. How could they get away with that legally? All right, you're having this moment. So look at all of this wondrous place around me, and yet the Mickey ice cream cone is what spoiled everything. Now, I want you to think about the two things that happen. The first is there's a consequence, not appreciating the gravity of that consequence could have spoiled everything. Could have stopped everything. But then there's another one, and I'm not sure which is worse. The other one is being in this incredible place and not appreciating all the things I can have and just focusing on the one thing I can't have. Which is a greater tragedy? Not sure which it is. What we see with Adam and Eve, we see, understand their thoughts. What we see where their heart's at. They've minimized that God said, you can have anything in this garden. Surely you can eat any tree. And then they minimize the fact that God said, and surely, same word again, surely you will die in the day that you eat of it. But both are minimized, the consequences and the freedoms. See, what we're seeing here is we're seeing the snake drawing them in. I want you to see what is said in this next verse, verse 4. Look what the serpent responds with. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's all we hear from the snake. That's it, he's done. He rests his case. Three sentences. He took down all of humanity. Three very potent, three very concentrated, manipulative sentences. See what he does? See how he's painting God? He says, look, God just doesn't want you to be like him. He's a little threatened by you guys. First of all, what he said is not true. You won't die. He's just threatened. He doesn't want you to be like him. He doesn't, he doesn't want your eyes to be open like his eyes are open. He's, he's painting God as being petty and threatened. And I want you to see what's happening here. He's distorting God. That's his whole tactic. I mean, he really doesn't talk about the fruit at all. I mean, he hints that it will make them like God. There is something that he hints about the fruit and about the tree. And, and there is something that is alluring about that temptation. In fact, we're going to talk about that next week, how temptation draws us in. But the main point of his whole argument, how he takes down all of humanity in three sentences, is he's really distorting God. He's painting him as this distant character that's just more of a concept just a generic being that's far away. He's starting to, to make the restrictions of God. He's over-exaggerating the restrictions of God. He draws her inch. Her response is then to minimize the freedoms that they actually have and then to minimize the consequences of sin. And then he starts digging in and painting God as petty, threatened. You know, he's just trying to hold you back. So what we have is his main point is distorting 
God. That's this main tactic. That's what's so tricky. You never, you never hear him say, just look at that fruit over there. I mean, look how tantalizing it is. I mean, that looks really, really good. I mean, I've, I've heard one of the other animals ate that fruit, and it was amazing. Best fruit you've ever tasted. I mean, just look at how it glistens in the sun. I mean, just looks like it'd be, you just want to sink your teeth into it. So just juicy and tasty. Don't you want to take that fruit? He didn't even really talk about the fruit. He distorts God. And the result of distorting God is this. Let's pick it up in verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate and she also gave some to her husband who was with her. And he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. Now watch this in verse 8. This is the narrator talking. And they heard the sound of who walking through the garden? Heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of who? The Lord God among the trees of the garden. See, who are they hiding from? Are they hiding from this distant, impersonal, cold, conceptual God? Are they running and hiding because, oh no, that man in the sky, he's mad at us. No, no, that's, that's not who they're running. Who's actually walking through the garden? It's Yahweh. The one who knows them, who created them, who brought them together, designed their life, designed the circumstances that they live in, designed this incredible garden. The one who loves them, who walks with them in the cool of the day. It's this personal, loving God. And they've had such a distorted picture of God by the end of this conversation that they run and hide from him. See, what we see happening here is we see, we see the snake spending his time distorting who God is. If there's one truth we could take from this passage and just beat it into our heads, it would be this one. Sin is only desired When God is distorted. Sin is only desired when God is distorted. If we could walk out of this passage and not fall into the same traps as Adam and Eve, not have the same things, the same DNA of their mistake enter into our lives and lead us to major mistakes, if we could take one truth, it would be sin is only desired when God is distorted. We have to distort God. God has to have a distorted image in our brain for us to even want sin. We'd have to, if we're awestruck by who God is, if we're just totally, perpetually awestruck by how amazing God is, why would we want to disobey him? Why would we question disobeying him? Why would we say, man, you are incredible, the almighty, most holy God, the one who runs the universe, but this one thing you were wrong about, how could we possibly do that? Why would we even want to do that? So I don't know, man, sin is, it's pretty I mean, it's pretty tempting. I, I, I don't, I mean, sin is powerful. But man, think about this. When we stop and think of who God is, if we have a clear picture of who God is, and, and just for starters, if we just thought about the brilliance of God, can you imagine taking every human being that's ever lived, I mean, not just right now, but in, in history, 
billions and billions of people. And, and if we could just combine our mental capacity in one giant IQ, I mean just one problem-solving, decision-making, genius mind, it would not even be a fraction of the brilliance of God. Do you realize that comparing us to God is like saying, how many Lego men do you have to line up till they equal your intelligence? Maybe some of you, it might be pretty close actually, but you know, for the most of us, okay, you can't compare the number of Lego men you, you stack up. It's just, they're not, we're not even on the same comparison chart. We're the creation of God. He invented something called intelligence. He invented brains. He he invented the idea of thought and minds. We realize this brilliance that he's the one who invented everything. Why would we question? Why would I say, God, I'm just not sure you've got it right on this. How could I do that? I'd be like, of course I'm going to listen to you. You invented everything. Yeah, but God's just, I mean, he kind of invented everything one time, but sometimes it just seems like God's a little behind. I mean, it just seems like he's a little behind the times a little bit. He's not just the source of brilliance. He's the source of beauty. He, he is the most awe-striking, beautiful being in existence. He inv- anything that is good and pleasing and pleasurable and joyful and beautiful, it's from him. Let's put it like this. Do you realize God is more cutting edge than you are? He's cooler than you. Okay, I think about it like this. The, the thing that's the most cutting edge right now and the thing that's going to be the most cutting edge tomorrow and for the rest of time, he already knows about it. It's not just that he's aware of it. He gave those creative minds the faculties to create it. And it's not just a matter of he's aware and he kind of gave them their minds. He, whether they give glory to God or not, he inspired anything beautiful that has ever or ever will come about. Okay, it's like this. Back in 1995, when you were wearing your overalls with one strap down because it was cool, <laughs> and your friend comes in and he's got his brand new carpenter jeans on, okay, you could put a, a, a hammer right there. I mean, I don't think you would, but you could put a hammer. He's got his Doc Martens on, okay? And you took that photo where you're both going like this, okay, because it was cool. God was going, oh, you're going to regret that photo, okay? <laughs> in about 20 years, someone's going to tag you in that for a little throwback situation, and you're going to regret taking that photo. Okay, he's more cutting edge. He knows, what, he knows the sharpest thing that's happening right now. He knows what's coming next, and he inspired that. He's an incredibly creative, beautiful God. He's not behind. He's not dust. We don't have to dust God off. He's on the cutting edge. He is the creator, invented creativity. For an awe of him, not just his brilliance, not just his beauty, but you realize he is for you. Not just us, you. It's his brilliance, it's his beauty, and it's his benevolence. He loves you. He knows you. He cares about you. He knows your circumstances. He's the personal God that's right there in our lives. There's the prayer in Scripture that says, oh, if we could just grasp how much he loves us, if we could just grasp a fraction, please, God, help us to grasp how much that you love us. Psalm 103, the the psalmist describes it like this. It says, As high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is your love 
for us. Do you know what that means? It's like if God could take the love he has for just, just you in particular, and, and if he were to take that love he feels for you and he was to turn it into a particle, a physical particle, and he was to pour all the particles of love he has for you into the universe, it would overflow out of the universe. He loves you. And if we're awestruck by who he is, why would we say, yeah, God, I, I just don't know that you got it right on this. God, you're a little behind on this. I mean, that was maybe good for a generation ago, but today we're modern people. Or God, why would you torture me like this? Why, why would you do this to me? I'm not sure you're aware of what I am. You know, God, I've tried hard, but you know, I just deserve to do this. See, sin is only desired. We have to have a distorted view of God to desire sin. Sin is only desired when God is distorted. There's three ways, really quickly, three ways we distort God. And these are all questions we can ask ourselves. Here's the first one. I want you to think about what is that sin in your life right now that you're desiring? What's that sin in your life? I want you to name it in your mind. Hold it out there for a second. That I want you to picture it as it's dangling off that tree that you're desiring, that's drawing you in, that you're trying to resist. And let's ask ourselves these questions. This first one, am I minimizing the brilliance of God's ways? Maybe it's that thing that's dangling there. It's, it's a form of materialism. Man, I just, I know it's probably not a wise use of my finances, or I, I, I'm, it's maybe not the best thing I could do with my finances. I know God wants me to do this with my finances, but man, I just really want that. It's just, it's dangling there. I just can't help myself. I'm just in this trap. Do you realize? Stop and consider the brilliance of God's ways. Do you know why He instructed us how to handle our stuff the way He did? It's not to hold us back from owning stuff, it's to keep our stuff from owning us. You realize that the more I'm in getting mode, the more I'm not satisfied with what I have. But when I'm in giving mode, I'm content. When I look around and see all that, I can actually enjoy the blessings he's given me. And while getting is constant, it's like that momentary high that just plummets very quickly and I'm kind of dissatisfied and off to the next thing. Whereas giving or using my, my finances wisely, whereas giving is something that's a joy that just keeps going. It doesn't fade out. It's the brilliance of his ways. Have I forgotten that? Here's the second one. Am I minimizing the destruction of sin? What's dangling on the tree? Maybe you're saying, well, man, it's just lust. I'm struggling with lust. I'm struggling with clicking on that website or reading that next book in the series or looking at that picture or looking at that person or thinking about that person that I work with or thinking about that friend or or just the lust. I'm in this relationship with this person. I know we're supposed to save uh, our sexuality and sexual expression for when we're married in a covenant relationship. But man, with my girlfriend or the person I'm dating or my boyfriend or my fiance, it's just we can't contain our lust. Okay, but is it really that bad you can look as long as you don't touch? I mean, really, how bad is lust? Are we questioning the destruction of sin? He's saying, man, watch out. Getting in a pattern of lust, letting that take root in our lives, man, it destroys relationships. It weakens and and waters down our sexuality. It, in the end, will be a constant search for satisfaction that will never be found. The first one, am I minimizing the brilliance of God's ways? Am I minimizing the destruction of sin? And here's the third one. Am I minimizing God's passion for me? 
by saying, man, God, why are you doing this to me? Why are you letting me be in this place that I'm in right now? God, why? I'm just going to do my own thing. I just can't take it anymore. I'm going to make this decision. I'm going to do it. I'm going to take that fruit. It's just, you're obviously not aware of my circumstances, so I'm going to take control. I waited for you. I prayed, God. I prayed that you would happen, but you didn't operate in my timing. So now I'm going to take over. But don't you realize how much he loves you, how much he's for you, how much he's working on your behalf, that he's in your midst? And yes, it's not in our timing. And yes, his ways are higher than our ways. We can't understand his brilliance, but he's working on our behalf. Do you realize the most important thing that we could do to avoid falling in the same trap as Adam and Eve is making sure that we have an an odd view of God, that we would be perpetually awestruck as a people. That we would place place habits in our lives that are going to stir up awe for who God is. Place ourselves around people that are going to stir up awe for who God is. Place ourselves in environments regularly and perpetually to stir up an awe for who God is. Because how we understand God plays into how we obey God. And sin is only desired when God is distorted. Well, how would I trust this kind of God? I mean, why would, what would make me trust a God like this? I mean, it's a high cost. There's a lot of writing on this in my life to just trust him. Why would we trust him? Well, because his murdered body was laid in a garden. God looked down at us in the midst of all of our sin, not deserving his attention, not deserving his love, but he said, I want to be in relationship with you because I love you. And he came to earth in the form of Jesus, allowed himself to be murdered, and his body was placed in a tomb in a garden. And on the third day, he rose again from the dead in that garden. And what was he doing? He loved us so much, he took the penalty for all of our rebellion. And he said, I've paid for it. And Jesus rose from the dead saying, the the payment has been paid. Sentence has been served. There's no wrath or anger left for you. God says, I love you so much. All you have to do is just accept that death on your behalf and you'll be washed clean. If he loves you so much to do that for you, is there anything he wouldn't do for you? This morning, do you need to accept that truth? Do you need to embrace that truth and just say, you know what, I need to accept it. I need to stop trying to earn my salvation. I just need to accept what was already done for me for my salvation. Do you want to accept that Jesus died for you today? Just receive that forgiveness from God. You can do that right now. And if that's you, I want to lead you in a prayer. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? If that's you, I just want to lead you in this prayer. Make these words your words to God. God, thank you for loving me. God, I could never earn my salvation. You are far too wonderful, too holy, too great. But you sacrificed and sent Jesus to die for my sins. I believe that, and I believe that he rose again from the dead, and I believe that that is what saves me. Thank you, and in Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for listening. For more resources and to check out other teaching series, please visit our website at westpines.org. If you would like to speak with somebody about beginning a relationship with Jesus or ask any questions you have about this teaching, please call at 954-432-0321. 
or you can email us at podcast at westpines.org.